Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. When the United States Supreme Court decided by a 6-3 majority to abolish affirmative action last week, responses ran the political spectrum. But they all had something in common. They were powerful and utterly predictable. The opinion issued today marks the beginning of the restoration of the colorblind legal covenant that binds together our multiracial multi-ethnic nation. We cannot let this decision be the last word. While the court can render a decision, it cannot change what America stands for. What do we do? Stand up, fight back! Diversity is under attack! What do we do? I genuinely don't understand why a student's race should be a factor in the admissions process, because I think that there are so many better characteristics that we can use to judge students. It's funny, we have a Supreme Court justice in there that actually benefited from this, and it's kind of like he wants to burn the bridge um, that he used. I said predictable because what we heard across America last week sounded identical to what we heard a quarter century ago when voters in California abolished affirmative action in the nation's largest state system of higher education. Integration is a must. We won't take them back to bus. They can't just use UCLA as their home base for the attacks on affirmative action and that they want to maintain white privilege at the expense of taking opportunities away from black, Latino, Native American, and other minority students. Like, for example... I don't think they shouldn't necessarily advocate for affirmative action because, first of all, there's absolutely no evidence that it even works. This will just devastate and gut all the laws necessary to have equal opportunity in the state of California for everyone. When you give a preference to one American because of the color of his or her skin or because of their, their national ancestry, that is discrimination. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. On November 5th, 1996, Californians voted on Proposition 209. It passed with 55% of the vote, ending affirmative action in California's state and public entities. And now, more than 25 years later, California provides perhaps the strongest example of how a massive higher ed system can adjust in a world without affirmative action. Prop 209 was endorsed by the state's then-governor, Republican Pete Wilson. The effort was led by Ward Connerly, then a member of the University of California Board of Regents. If you read the language of Proposition 209, it's very clear. The state shall not discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual or group 
on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin in the operation of public employment, public education, or public contracting. That's clear. Now, if you were listening to that, you would have thought, gee, that sounds similar to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. It's almost identical. And you would not have heard the words affirmative action in there any place. Connerly was born in Leesville, Louisiana in 1939. He's said he's multiracial, with Black, Choctaw, and European ancestry. The state of Louisiana classified him as colored in the state census. During the Great Migration, his aunt and uncle moved Connerly from their segregated Black Louisiana community to California, seeking better opportunities. Connerly went to Sacramento State College, was active in the Young Democrats, and campaigned against housing discrimination. He later started a highly successful consulting and land use planning business and moved toward a Republican and sometimes libertarian worldview. In 1993, Ward Connerly was appointed to the UC Board of Regents, where he soon became immersed in California's affirmative action program. This all started in 1994 when an applicant to UC San Diego Medical School was rejected. Teresa Watanabe is an education reporter for the Los Angeles Times. And the parents of this student claimed that their son, who was white, had higher grades and test scores than those who were accepted, who were Black and Latino. Almost 20 years earlier, the Supreme Court had ruled in a case called Regents of the University of California v. Bakke. The 1978 decision found that racial quotas were unconstitutional, but that affirmative action could be used so long as race was just one of several factors considered in admissions. By 1994, Ward Connerly had examined admissions numbers in the UC system and believed that affirmative action had simply extended the kind of discrimination that the Baki case had meant to end. Teresa Watanabe says that's when Connerly pressed for change across the entire University of California system. And in 1995, he had the UC Board of Regents vote on the issue. From California tonight, a picture of how the nation's largest university system may be transformed now that its affirmative action program is going to be ended. Late last night, the University of California regents voted that two years from now, an individual's race and gender will no longer be considered when you apply to work or study at the university. And it was a really political thing because Ward Connolly was a political appointee of Pete Wilson, a conservative California governor who was running for president, and he was looking for an issue that would distinguish him in the presidential race. Today, affirmative action preferences are quotas based on race and gender. They are inescapably unfair. Governor Pete Wilson formally announcing his run for president late August 1995. That's why I've acted to end them in California and a Wilson presidency will end them in America. Wilson did not end affirmative action in America. Instead, he was forced to end his presidential run, barely one month after it began. As the Washington Post put it on September 30th, 1995, quote, Wilson became the first casualty of the race for the 1996 Republican presidential nomination, closing his short-lived 
debt-ridden, mixed-message candidacy before it ever found a voice, end quote. However, when it came to ending affirmative action, it was Ward Connerly who had found his voice. Polling at the time showed that about 60% of Americans believed that affirmative action was unfair. Proposition 209 was written to expand the ban on affirmative action almost every place California tax dollars were spent, in hiring for state jobs, in state contracting, and of course, in college admissions in every state school. The sad fact is that in the era of race preferences, UC was admitting admitting middle and upper income black kids, giving them extra points, a new meaning to the term brownie points, okay? They were giving them extra points, discriminating against Asian kids and white kids in order to admit lesser achieving black and Latino kids. Advocates and many students thunderously rejected Connerly's claim. Here's a UCLA law student who spoke to a local L.A. television station. And he's saying that we would be better suited at lower-tier, lower-ranked law schools. That is completely false, and it's just buying into the kind of racist pseudoscience that isn't any better than that racist pseudoscience that was happening during the Booker T. Washington era. Those arguments fell short with voters. Californians passed Prop 209 in November 1996. L.A. Times reporter Teresa Watanabe says the impact was immediate. So after Proposition 209 was passed, the percentage of Black and Latino students at the UC system's flagship campuses, UCLA and UC Berkeley, plunged by half. White and Asians stayed about the same, but it was a huge impact on Black and Latino students at UC. Progressives have wanted to overturn Prop 209 ever since, but they've never succeeded. California is more democratic and diverse now than it was in 1996. In fact, only 35% of Californians identify as white alone now. Nevertheless, voters rebuffed efforts to revive affirmative action in 2020. 56% of voters rejected that proposal. Ward Connerly may have seen this coming. Interestingly, the same libertarian leanings that made him an enemy of racial preferences made him a stalwart supporter of domestic partnerships and same-sex marriage. He said that anyone who truly believed in limited government must also believe in the civil right to marry whomever you love. As for California's end to affirmative action, in 1997, Connerly said that he hoped one day it would become the law of the land. That old saying about it not being over till the lady sings, I I think then she will be humming in their chamber and the music sounds so good. Except that is not the end of the story. In fact, it's only the beginning. Because while the percentage of Black and Latino students on California campuses fell off a cliff in those first years, enrollment has since rebounded. The state has two higher ed systems, the UC schools and California State University, which has 23 campuses. At the UC schools, Black and Latino students were about 43% of Californians admitted in the fall of 2022. That's higher than the 20% they represented before Prop 209 passed in 1996. California State University has fared even better. Enrollment today almost perfectly matches the state's diversity. Meaning, 
It's taken 25 years, but California's system of higher education has made meaningful strides forward in building diverse campuses without affirmative action. So for the rest of the show today, we're going to look at how they did it. One example comes from the medical school at the University of California, Davis. Dr. Mark Henderson has been head of admissions since 2007. When I started, our medical school was not very representative or reflective of California. So basically, colleagues took variables that were present in every medical school application and developed a scale from zero to 99 that essentially measures a degree of socioeconomic disadvantage that a candidate has. Today, between 40 and 50% of our entering students come from underrepresented groups. So is that an end run around affirmative action or a fairer way to achieve a more meaningful kind of diversity in higher ed? Those are the urgent questions now being asked by the rest of the country. So we'll seek some answers when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking about what the nation can learn from California's experience. Almost 30 years after voters there ended affirmative action in that state. Well, in 2012, Yolanda Copeland Morgan became vice provost for enrollment management at UCLA. She served in that position until just last month when she retired, and she joins us today from Claremont, California. Yolanda Copeland Morgan, welcome to On Point. Hello, Magna. It's good to be with you. Well, so we talked in the previous segment about how in the late 90s, after the passage of Prop 209, Black and Latino enrollment in places like UCLA was cut in half. By the time you joined in 2012, what was the the diversity situation like at UCLA? Well, it certainly was still below, despite all the efforts that the university had made. It was um, below where we were prior to the... Um, uh, implementation of Proposition 209. And I, and I would say that um, when I came aboard, there had been a lot of efforts, a lot of time, a lot of money put into um, strategies that um, the university had hoped 
would um, restore uh, the diversity that um, we were looking for as a public institution. Um, but in fact, um, you know, I think you can characterize the university's journey as um, as one of, you know, some progress, but a lot of um, challenges. Mm-hmm. It was not an easy um, journey. journey <laughs> yeah. for us. Can you just b- briefly describe what one of those uh, less than successful efforts were so that we get an understanding of what UCLA had tried? So, I, I, you know, f- first of all, let me say that I am not speaking on behalf of the university because I'm in uh, a retirement mm-hmm. and a former uh, vice provost uh, for enrollment management, nor was I at the university at the time. Correct. So yes. generally what I can say is that the university um, re-doubled um, down, if you will, on its outreach programs on um, working with community leaders, working with school districts across the state um, to to be real partners in the K through 12 efforts of preparing students for um, success in um, all of our our uh, universities. And um, for many, many reasons, um, those efforts were challenging because uh, race and uh, income plays a huge role in the type of educational opportunities that students will get or that they have, right, um, to prepare them for colleges. And so the work went beyond just looking at uh, the admissions process, but rather um, the the state had to focus, the university system had to focus on the inequities um, that students uh, were experiencing in their own neighborhoods and, and their own schools. Right. So the, the upstream K through 12 inequities. But as you said, that those are very complex, deep-rooted, and difficult to solve. <laughs> I mean, it's a problem of multiple generations in this country. So then where did you look specifically, um, again, upstream of an undergraduate's experience to try and find, you know, um, those uh, qualified young people who were not coming into the UCLA application pipeline? Because somehow you did turn those numbers around. Yeah. So I uh, came to the uh, University of California system after spending uh, more than three decades in highly selective private um, institutions, and um, where many of those institutions, too, were trying to diversify their student populations. And so I brought with me a lot of trials and errors and successes. And, um, and, and, and you know, my, my passion and dedication to, um, to diversity is, has long driven my, my work in um, higher education and the opportunity to give back to a city um, that raised me and educated me. The city of Los Angeles was a real honor. Um, and so um, because of my, ex- my three decades of experience before coming to UCLA, there were um, data and um, uh, experiences that I had had at other institutions that allowed me to um, approach my work at UCLA, mm-hmm. perhaps in a different way, than others, and let me say that 
Um, UCLA is an institution that um, is driven by its public mission, and it had and still has an unusual commitment from, you know, the staff, the faculty, and leadership to Mm -hmm. diversity. Um, And I was willing to fail um, uh, in in, um, experimenting uh, and trying new... um, New strategies for achieving diversity. So let's talk about specifically what those strategies are, because as far as I can read from um, some of the reporting about the changes that you brought to um, the uh, enrollment management team at UCLA, it was that you weren't just looking at schools, at at K through 12 or high schools anymore, right? You reached out to African-American churches also went to like interesting places like community events, um, the Taste of Soul Street Festival in the, in, um, LA, in the Crenshaw neighborhood in, in L.A., even meeting families at coffee shops uh, in order to talk to them uh, about college recruitment. So tell me a little bit more about what makes those efforts different from what had come before. Well, I, there, there are a couple of things that I would mention. Um, uh, first of all, in any work that we do, we must acknowledge the unfortunate history of minorities in this country. Um, We must acknowledge that our lived experiences are shaped by the neighborhoods that we live in, the educational, the limited educational opportunities and unequal educational opportunities that are in uh, rural communities, underrepresented communities, inner city uh, communities on reservations and lands and communities near reservations. We have to acknowledge that first and before developing uh, strategies. Secondly, we must recognize that our lived experiences, the lived experiences of students, impact their ability to prepare for college. And and lastly, I would say. Uh, my belief is that we all have a responsibility to help prepare students from any background, but particularly students from um, disadvantaged backgrounds, to prepare them for college. And so that we have to work um, in partnership with our K-12 through uh, educational partners. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and to acknowledge what the data shows. Let me just say this, for example. Um, Research shows that students who go to preschool before going to kindergarten have a uh, start kindergarten with a vocabulary of about 5,000 words versus those who do not go to preschool and do not have access to preschool uh, where they typically have a 2,000-word vocabulary. We have to recognize in our most um, uh, uh, inner city schools that our educational facilities are inferior mm-hmm. to those educational facilities and schools that uh, more privileged students, students yeah. from upper income backgrounds um, uh, attend. Yeah. So the educational access is unequal. So my work began acknowledging those realities and that I needed our, our local officials, our leaders in K-12 through education, our faculty at UCLA who had already been involved, and I doubled down on that and said, I need you to not only support me in the work of recruiting 
um, students and helping students to prepare for college, but also to help our K through 12 colleagues. Yeah. Yolanda, if I, if I could just uh, um, step in here and forgive me. I hear everything that you're saying because, um, I mean, these are these are truths about uh, America and its uh, various education systems. But today I really want to understand, like, concretely, uh, specifically what um, you did as vice provost at UCLA that actually um, sort of turned around the enrollment numbers for Black and Latino students there. Again, like I was just mentioning some of the outreach efforts that you um, had launched. Why do you think, you know, those or, or, or other programs worked? I mean, I'm mean, just kind of looking for like your set of data that, uh, that led to the increased enrollment in Black and uh, Latino students at UCLA. Sure. So one of the things I said, acknowledging the truths that I just mentioned. And then secondly, as a result of that, we went in um, and acknowledged that we needed to build relationships of trust with our communities in the neighborhoods, in the schools where we were trying to recruit students from underrepresented background and um, and to recognize that um, teachers and um, school leaders were doing the best that they could with the resources to prepare our students, but that we, they could do a better job if we partnered with them and helped them to understand exactly what we were looking for uh-huh. in our future Bruins. That's, so, okay, that's what I was hoping to hear. Like, what was, what was the nature of the partnership? Okay, we've got about another minute before I've got to uh, take a quick turn here, but go ahead. So let me say that first we started with saying that we're not simply looking for A students. We're looking for students who have taken rigorous courses in high school um, that demonstrate that they can do college-level work. So then we had to work with the school counselors to say, you know, what does that look like in a math sequence? What does that look like in um, uh, his, uh, history and other courses that the students are taking? Um, and that, you know, because there are many students who are getting straight A's in these high schools, but they weren't taking getting straight A's in rigorous courses because they didn't have access uh-huh. to the AP courses, to the IB courses, and other uh, college-level courses that would help prepare them. Yeah. Okay, so Yolanda Copeland-Morgan, stand by for just a second. We're going to return to UCLA's specific experience in um, you know trying to build diverse campuses in a world after affirmative action in California. But you're really touching on something that um, seems to be a constant theme here about, let's call them upstream efforts to develop uh, diverse young people as great candidates for uh, for college and university. So I think that's one of the lessons to draw from the 30-year effort following California's ban on affirmative action back in 1996. One of my favorite students, he first joined the tech center. Um, he was a junior. And so we're talking to this kid. We're talking about college for the first time at this moment. This this is the child with a 4.4 GPA. And right now in the spring semester of his junior year is the first time he's talking about college, right? That is too late. That is a, a, a travesty. Well, this is Ajay Man- Mani. He's manager of culture, curriculum, and instruction at the Tech Center, a nonprofit education center in South Los Angeles run by the for-profit real estate company Sola Impact. 
Now, Ajay says for many students who may not have access to a lot of the high-tech equipment at home, walking into Sola Impact's 13,000-square-foot facility, packed to the rafters with technology, is like an otherworldly experience. To them, to their eyes, for the first time, it's something out of Marvel. It's something out of a movie, Mission Impossible, something that, that's like, oh, this is a lot of screens, like a Best Buy to them. is like what we get compared to a lot. Well, the Tech Center also offers services on college readiness, applying for financial aid, and career development. Everything wealthy families might take for granted as a regular part of a student's high school experience. The Tech Center also commits to supporting students even after they graduate high school and head off to college. Students like Michelle Gutierrez, who grew up in East L.A. Michelle got into UC Berkeley and just finished her freshman year. My thoughts on college when I was way younger was, oh, I don't think I can do it. It seems like too much. But thankfully, with my high school and Sola, of course, they really helped with my perception of college and, you know, and saying, you know what, I can do this. And really giving them that lay of the land so they have a better understanding. But also giving them those skills and those soft skills to present themselves and feel confident when they're on these campuses, when they're not going to be the majority. And so where their lived experiences becomes these sort of shields of strength in their adversity, sort of empowers them. It drives them forward. I think what I really learned, especially in my last year of high school and my first year in college, was that I needed to be more social. I can't be scared to go up to people or look for the stuff that I need to look for, because if not, I'm honestly holding myself back. I think the importance of upstream efforts when it comes to college access is allowing the students to seek out college as an option organically themselves through just exposing them to what college can unlock. The idea of a student being a doctor because they fall in love with what the career could be makes them want to go, what does it take to be a doctor? I want to work at SpaceX. Well, who is SpaceX hiring? The access to information has never been greater. It's just about providing a spark to get something ignited. My first day at Berkeley was so tense and scary because I did not know where any of my classes were. It is such a big campus. I was wondering, should I go to class 30 minutes early, 10 minutes early? But I think after the first day when I was running around trying to find my classes and getting to know all the people, just knowing that someone is always going to be there to say, Michelle, you know what? It's going to be okay. You know, you've got this. Because if I did not have Sola like behind my back, I would probably be struggling in my first year. It's amazing to watch kids who, who are genuinely afraid to be the nerds that they are find real value and merit in their interests. Kids who want to be interested in things that other people aren't or who want to just do something irrelevant to what other people are having them want to do and having to exist as their own individual. I was so close to being like, you know what, I don't think college is right for me. But in the end, I pushed through and I didn't underestimate myself anymore. And I just felt so glad to be coming back home, but also coming back home with all these new experiences and people that I've met. It's just, it was just really great to reflect on the year that I had and just feel so much like I, I can do what I want to do like in my future. That was 
Michelle Gutierrez, now a rising sophomore at UC Berkeley. You also heard Dr. Ajaymani, Manager of Culture, Curriculum and Instruction at the Sola Tech Center in South Los Angeles. Today, we're talking about what the rest of the nation can learn from California's almost 30-year experience now after voters there chose to ban affirmative action back in 1996. We've also got Yolanda Copeland-Morgan with us, who just retired as Vice Provost for Enrollment Management at UCLA. And we'll have more from her and others when we come back. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Yolanda Copeland-Morgan is with us today. She just retired last month from her position as vice provost for enrollment management at UCLA. And she's been describing to us the changes she brought uh, to UCLA in terms of its outreach into communities uh, of children of color, students of color, and, and economically disadvantaged families to help better prepare those students to be applicants for one of California's top universities. It's one of the ways in which California has adjusted to a world without affirmative action ever since voters banned it there in 1996. So here's another example. Dark, uh, Dr. Mark Henderson heads up admissions at the UC Davis Medical School. And he says examination of medical students' family income shows that more than half of med students in this nation come from families in the top 20% of income earners. Only 4% of them come from the bottom 20% of income earners, which means... Lower income students are vastly underrepresented in medical schools. So it was really disturbing to me that a state that really is almost 50% Latino now, there would only be 5% of the physicians who maybe be more likely to serve those communities, particularly essential workers, farm workers, restaurant workers, people who are a very essential part of the workforce. So in 2012, UC Davis Medical School began using a socioeconomic disadvantage scale, or SED, in its admissions process. The scale rates applicants from 0 to 99, taking into account parental income and education, whether the applicant grew up in parts of the state that are short on doctors, whether the applicant works to support their own family already. And the result? In the most recent entering class, 14% of the new med students were black, 30% Hispanic, and 84% comes from what UC Davis considers disadvantaged backgrounds. If you are a teacher in a campus where most of the students are not white and come from backgrounds that have been historically marginalized in healthcare, the conversations that go on in the classroom are very different. Many of our students were on Medi-Cal growing up. So we don't have to explain to them how difficult it is for a patient on Medi-Cal to see a specialist. 
or even to see a primary care physician because their own families have struggled with that exact same healthcare problem. So to me, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that they are going to be more likely to work to solve that problem than someone who comes from a wealthy family who has no idea what it's like to struggle with healthcare access. That's Dr. Mark Henderson at the University of California, Davis Medical School. Well, I want to bring John McWhorter into the conversation now. He's associate professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University and author most recently of Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. Professor McWhorter, welcome to you. Thank you. So you have long been on the record as opposing uh, affirmative action as traditionally understood. Do the examples of the kind of student development uh, and outreach that you've heard so far that have taken place in California over the past 25 years, I mean, do these sound like the, the, a better, more appropriate uh, set of methods to create diverse campuses without relying on race? Yes, they are wonderful. It's not that I'm against affirmative action. The issue is how long do you do affirmative action, especially when you consider that that term is a euphemism. And maybe euphemisms have a purpose, but it's not affirmative action. What are we affirming? What's the action? It is how long do you lower standards of grades and tests for Black and Latino students? How long do you do that? And it is lowering standards, and I don't think I even need to argue here for this audience that that is the case. How long do you lower standards? And the answer is not until society is perfect. It's not until there's no such thing as what we call societal racism. You do it for a short time. And the fact is, I was teaching at Berkeley when all the events that we've talked about on this show happened. And it was an open secret that based on the old school idea that what affirmative action is, is a black bonus. And I should say, just in case anybody doesn't know, I'm black myself. And so I'm going to call it that. It was a black bonus, basically. There were two, basically, student systems. There was one system of people who were admitted rather selectively. And then there was this other cohort of students where everybody knew that the standards were different and you had to teach differently. And there were certain expectations that you couldn't have. Now, did that make sense based on what the United States was like in the 60s and 70s? Probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you needed to have a black bonus because in 1965 or even 1975, being black, no matter what class you were, was a disadvantage. But really, what we're supposed to be affirming, what we're supposed to be preferencing is disadvantage, is obstacles. And in 2023, really, we should be thinking about all people's obstacles, not just people who happen to be Black and Latino. And so my idea is that you give preference, i.e., you have lower standards. We have to be honest about that. You have lower standards for people who have come up in a way that there is only so much that we can expect, that we have to trim what we think of as a dossier. That includes Black people who grow up poor, or even lower working class, but not black people who grow up middle class and affluent. It shouldn't just be about skin color. Mm -hmm. The way it's been done since is a great thing. And I hate to sound peevish, but frankly, in 1995, 96, 97, I watched all kinds of people at UC Berkeley getting up on soapboxes, talking about how we were going to go back to a segregated system, how we were blocking black students from opportunity completely because they couldn't get into UCLA or UC Berkeley. Well, here we are almost 30 years later, and none of that has been borne out. 
Berkeley and UCLA are not remotely segregated campuses, and that's in terms of Black and Latino students. There was a dip. That was unfortunate. Mm -hmm. It was not as stunning or concrete an experience at the time as one might think. You did not feel like all of a sudden Black students disappeared, but nevertheless, there was a dip. And then it went back up. And as far as Black students being barred from opportunity, there have been studies now, and it doesn't pan out. Black Students who, you know, were not preferred then do not make less money than they would have otherwise. If anybody wants to see a study, I suggest Zachary Bleemer, B-L-E-E-M-E-R. So what's gone on since is the right thing. You're addressing disadvantage, which disproportionately affects black people. But you don't just make it about skin color. That made sense in 1966. That doesn't make sense now. Today... It's condescending and it's inaccurate. It is divisive and it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So um, let me turn back to Yolanda Copeland Morgan, because uh, I appreciate the background that both of you have brought uh, to this conversation. Um, And at the same time, I also want to push forward here because uh, 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 Ms. Copeland Morgan, I'm seeing a quote here from a UCLA law professor, actually, uh, Richard Sander. Who, who he argues that the affirmative action ban that took place in California led to the efforts that we've been describing today that you undertook at UCLA, for example. And those efforts have actually produced, he argues, greater diversity at campuses throughout the UC system and equally, if not more importantly, better grades and higher graduation rates for Black and Latino students. So overall, Would you say that California's colleges and universities um, and the diverse students who wish to attend them are better off now after affirmative action was banned? Absolutely not. And let me me start by saying, first, I don't agree with much of anything that um, Dr. Sanders uh, says. And um, secondly, and I certainly don't uh, agree with... um, with uh, Professor your McWhorters, who, who yes. just yes, who yes. just spoke, and and let me say this: the 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 students we have never admitted students with lower standards. What yes, the university have. did was, uh, I'm going to respectfully ask that you let me talk. Um, we did not admit students with lower standards. As admissions advanced in the United States, college admissions. We recognized that we needed to take a more holistic approach to evaluating how well students um, are prepared for our colleges and universities. And in doing so, we recognized that we could not hold students um, accountable for an educational experience that they did not have. Our public schools are still unequal in access to uh, rigorous courses, AP courses, IB courses. And so you could not expect students from inner city or rural schools to have six AP courses like many of your students from more privileged communities did when their schools only offered two or none in some cases. So we look for other evidence 
of a student's ability to be successful at our institution. And today that looks like this. Students take community college courses to supplement their uh, the lack of um, courses in their school, the leadership opportunities that they take, their summer experiences. And so what we do today is to, to look at how well the student has taken advantage of the educational opportunities mm. that are available to them and not compare them to students who are going to our nation's highly selective private schools that have incredible resources and lack no opportunities. So, so actually, hang hang on for a second. Professor McWhorter, I'll come back to you in one second. But 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 Miss Copeland Morgan, can I just ask a quick follow up there? Sure. You know, this is exactly why we wanted to come bring you on because of your experience in in the practices at UCLA in terms of helping develop students that could one day become Bruins, as you've said. You're talking about these efforts that have been going on in the past, you know, couple of decades. I, I still want to know if you think that those efforts would have taken place if affirmative action were still in place in California. Well, you know, it's hard to look back and say what has happened, right? And and let me also say this. It is, I take offense, not to anyone here, but to the notion that the UC system is doing okay now because after 25 years of low enrollment rates for underrepresented minority students, we are finally back to where we were in 1996. We don't have 25 years to increase our enrollments um, uh, over the next, you know, for minority students. Um, uh, uh, again, that, that, that 25 years is too long. So let me get back to this. So what I did was build relationships of trust in minority communities and built um, uh, partnerships with our high school partners. In fact, we created the UCLA-LAUSD Collaborative. Mm-hmm. And I asked UCLA faculty who were experts in the field of education in core um, courses like science courses and things to work with me and the teachers in our inner city schools to help them to understand uh, some of the best practices and content that should be covered in their courses to help prepare students not to be minimally eligible for the UC system, but in fact to be competitive for the UC system. So, so Ms. Copeland Morgan, forgive me for for stepping in here. I'm just also have, unfortunately, I have to be mindful of the time as well. And I wanted to give uh, Professor McWhorter uh, a chance to respond. So go ahead. Magna, I'm going to be brief because I see that we're now practically out of time. There's an idea that, pardon me, if you don't like the way UC was doing it before the mid-90s, then you don't understand that there is inequity in society and that it is disproportionately racial. That's not true. The issue is not that I don't understand or other people don't understand that some people have more opportunities, some people have more access to good education than others. I know that. We all know that. Anybody who's listening to this show understands that. The issue is more specific. Should there be specifically a Black Latino bonus regardless of the obstacles that you may have faced? You can't elide that question. It doesn't serve any purpose because everybody's thinking about it. That's what we're thinking about. And so, well, can I just jump yes. in here? Because no, hasn't, wait, 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 hasn't I, I the, say, but hasn't I the Supreme say. Court 
put an end to that question, though? Yes. And I'm saying everything that's gone on at UC since where the idea is to address inequity is wise. That's very important. But that's not the same thing as what was going on 30 years ago. And no institution should be looking at just melanin now. 50 years ago, sure, but not now. Megna, I interrupted you, and I am so sorry, and I'm never going to do it again. What did you just ask? (laughs) No need to ask for forgiveness. I was just pointing out that um, uh, the question that you ask has been put to rest by the Supreme Court in in its decision of last week. The court has said you cannot look at um, uh, at race or racial and have racial preferences in admissions. So we just have a couple a couple of minutes left. And I would like to give the last word to Yolanda Copeland Morgan today, because Ms. Copeland Morgan, I'd like us you to you're speaking to the whole nation here right now. And it's, you know, all of these colleges and universities across the country who are now beginning their journey, as you put it earlier, that California began um, back in 1996. In the minute or so we have left, what would be your advice to them on first steps to take? Well, the the first thing is that we're looking for one of the things that needs to happen is we need to fund our public schools, give them the resources that they need so that students can um, have a reasonable chance of preparing themselves to go to our nation's best colleges and universities. Secondly, we must, must acknowledge the truth. Where you live, your socioeconomic status, your race and ethnicity plays a role in the opportunities that are available. And I would encourage my colleagues to look at their neighboring schools and build partnerships with the faculty, with the uh, uh, school district leaders, uh, with the teachers, and bring to bear Um, the resources to the extent possible to partner to help them to better understand what our admissions process looks like and to understand that we're not engaged in affirmative action, but we are engaged in equity and looking at a holistic approach in evaluating how well students have taken advantage of the educational opportunities available to them. Well, Yolanda Copeland Morgan just retired last month. As actually, from... actually in the fall. In the fall. Okay. Yes, I retired in September. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. Last I got. Th- I'm sorry. I got that so wrong. Um, I was a better student than that at one time. But <laughs> she's formerly <laughs> vice president for enrollment at UCLA. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And John McWhorter, associate professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University, and author of. Most recently, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. Professor McWhorter, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Magna. This is On Point. <laughs>